there's a slim chance that he will laugh all the way to the bank and his NFT will truly be worth $2 million in a year. But I think it's much more likely that it's worth $0 in a year. I feel like it's pretty likely that his relationship is worth $0 in a year. Uh, This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. You're not in your house, Skippy. Or you're not in your shed, I guess I should say. How do you know? Maybe I upgraded the shed. That is true. That, w- that would be quite a, uh, a switcheroo. I didn't realize you had that kind of craftsmanship. I just got jealous of the Dougal's travel. I'm not in a Hilton, though. Any guesses? I'm not, I don't have the same obscure knowledge of uh, hotelery that you do. So I actually don't want to reveal my location. I want to turn it into a quiz for the listeners. I'm in what I would call the momentum investing capital of the world. Vegas? <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> not a good place for a value investor. This I'll tell a quick story. Um, <laughs> When I started uh, my local value investing meetup, which I've done for a decade or something now, um, I first started at a restaurant and I assumed like, so we reserved a formal room. We had like presentations going on. I assumed everyone would show up and buy like a meal or at least a drink or something. And the, all the investors outside of me would show up and they'd buy like maybe a coffee so we'd we'd take up like two hours of this like really nice conference space and our total bill would be like $17. So I eventually <laughs> had to change my strategy because we were just completely wasting the restaurant's resources and time. I yeah, I don't feel like Vegas is a great place for a value investor. Yeah. It's not the purpose. I love that place though. So I well, I said it was the momentum investing capital of the world, and you're a momentum guy. This explains everything our listeners need to know, Dougals. I love it. Okay. Can I throw out a funny little uh, anecdote story that I came upon uh, that I think is wonderful? This should have nothing to do with non-fungible tokens or NFTs, but it does. This this act, this human being performed. So I'm going to give you, I saw this on uh, Reddit. I'm going to give you a little little snippet. So background, uh, this gentleman has been with his girlfriend for about four years. He's madly in love. They're probably in Vegas right now, man. They, right now, yeah, they probably are. Yeah. So this guy decides that it's time to propose. Here's some context he provides. Jenna, who I, his girlfriend, has recently been mad at me as I lost a significant portion of, of my half of our savings in Dogecoin. I did make half of it back with stock market options, but then lost some more, and she wanted me to quit. So I did. That sounds like, you know, he, he's had some lessons. Girlfriend got mad. He's like, all right, I get it. I get it, right? Like, let, let me let me make sure I can settle down, get some fundamentals in shape. Now. No, 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 no. A little bit further down in his post. Well, things were going okay. And then I found something that made my jaw drop. It was an NFT with significance to our life that she would love. I rushed to buy it with almost my entire life savings because I know this is a good one. And that it could be worth a million when we're older. I got down on one knee and presented her with the NFT and she started crying. 
tears of joy you, dude goes God, i'm gonna give you joy. one guess were these tears of joy <laughs> or tears of anger oh wow okay so i'm gonna i've got to reset because i've got some feedback for the listeners recently that we we dive in without uh, defining things an nft is a non-fungible token these these have become very popular these days uh we talked about it last week a little bit oh man i feel and and then one other piece of context Dougals, right he's on reddit asking if i remember correctly he's asking how he can smooth this over i think it might be really tough to smooth over because he was in trouble after the dogecoin incident and this is a a very similar uh pattern of behavior right dude i wish he was on reddit saying how can i smooth this over no because that wasn't not not exactly this is this is where this whole so okay spoiler alert these were not tears of joy these were tears of anger okay spoiler alert he told her it's a symbol of my love and devotion but how did she see it? She saw it as selfish and foolish. So when you say he's trying to see how to smooth it over, this is actually the question that he left at the post. Okay. I don't want to sell the NFT because it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I don't want to leave her. What can I do? So it's, oh. <laughs> it's not, a, this is not a smooth over. This is like ultimatum or like an internal ultimatum. Let me ask you a somewhat hypothetical question. Okay. Do you think he loves the nft more than he loves his fiance he doesn't know (laughs) but uh, ironically he's saying that he loved the nft because of the significance to their life but he might be willing to give her up to keep it so i I, there's there's some lack of clarity in his in his thought process this investment thought process so he didn't share or post the nft i don't believe i'd love to see it but I guess I'm wondering if the NFT was available to me and I took a screenshot of it and put it on my phone, you know, okay. if that would also be significant to him or if it's that really that line of code that says that he has ownership. I think I think there might be a level of analytic and thought that that we're putting into this NFT more so than this individual did. But just another I thought this was funny and just like another symbol of come on, peeps, we got to we got to get our our head in the game here. Poor Jenna. Poor Jenna is what I say, because the Dogecoin thing, in a way, it's similar. Like it's another digital asset that is hard to tie value to. And we've joked around with Dogecoin in the past. And, and we certainly understand why some people are intrigued by it. But it, I just think I'd, I'd say almost from the consumer side, like it's a brave new world. And it's, tr- it's tough to draw the lines right now of like what will be valuable and what truly has value. I mentioned in last week's episode that yeah, we called investing in the fashion metaverse. Like I mentioned the hundreds NFTs and those things skyrocketed this week. Like that's one of the hottest things happening right now. Everyone, it seems that purchased those tripled their money in a week. And so that's a very, the allure of that is very desirable. It feels like, it feels like an asset class that is a no brainer bet. And I understand how people get caught up in that. I'm happy I haven't got caught up in that yeah. at this yeah. point in time. Have you read the four hour work week? Tim Ferriss's book? No, I've done the podcast and stuff. I'm vaguely yeah. familiar. There's a, there's a part of it where I think this is a really, it's an interesting concept where he brings up uh, how you don't need to make your money back in the same way that you lost it, but that's often what people do. So meaning you're sitting at the blackjack table, not that you would do this, 
Yeah. Okay, no, beware. I'm a value investor. No chance. <laughs> Seriously, no um, chance. Yeah. No. So uh, you're sitting at the blackjack table and you lose the hundred dollars. So then you're like, okay, well now I have to play more hands so I can get the hundred dollars back in blackjack, right? And he's like, you don't have to make your money back in the same way that you lost it. And this proposal of many of the things that we're bringing up just makes me think this this gentleman is basically saying, I lost my money in Doge. So let me find some other risky investment to make my money back. Yeah. Oh, I got that back in options. Now I've lost my money in options. Let me find some other risky investment I'm going to make my money back in. Then I'm going to call love. Yeah, I'm so with you. And I love that you're articulating it in that way. Like, I think what's really hard for the, the human psyche is if you lost a thousand bucks in Doge in a week, it might to do it elsewhere, it might take half a year to make your thousand bucks back. And I think that's what's so hard. Yes. But that is, in most cases, I'm sure the right way to go. Really interesting stuff. And mostly I feel bad for this guy. There's a slim chance that he will laugh all the way to the bank and his NFT will truly be worth $2 million in a year. But I think it's much more likely that it's worth $0 in a year. I feel like it's pretty likely that his relationship is worth zero dollars in a year. Oh, I hope I went man. there. I went there. Yeah. Sorry, Jenna. All right. So let's let's actually dive into some uh, some listener mail that pertains to the Alibaba conversation that we've had, and also pertains to one of your best friends, Trama. Maybe my best friend. Maybe, yeah. For those that have not listened to all of our pods, which I think is none of you, but for those that haven't. Chamath, he he's an investor in the Bay Area. Historically, done a lot of investing in a from a VC called Social Capital that no longer exists. He's become recently the SPAC king. Has a number of SPACs that all have like a IPO as their ticker. So it's like IPO A, IPO B, etc. Right. right. So he's been known as the SPAC king. He said a number of things that uh, that Skippy has not taken a liking to uh, over the past few months. Um, particularly, there was one moment where he he asked how much someone's children were worth as a representation of why value investing needs to get back to principles. We can put that aside for a second because in this podcast, so he is the, uh, there's this all in podcast where Jamath and some of his, his good friends talk about a variety of different topics. And one of the ones they talked about this time was Alibaba. And it's actually interesting. So Jamath is, he's a, he's always looking for the way to like have the soundbite right? Yeah. Say something a little bit yeah. controversial. But if you look past that controversy, I think that there were some interesting points that you brought in. So Jonathan sent this pod in, and I just want to drop a couple points. There was one line that I think I will take with me forever to bring laughter uh, to my heart. And that's when he, he calls the, uh, the VIE structure, which is a variable interest entity. It's an entity that you can say, instead of buying the actual asset, instead, we're going to set up a holding company and you can buy interest in the holding company that the holding company now has rights to some like some control over the, the original entity and also a right to the profits. So this is how a lot of the Chinese companies have gone public in the US. Enron, which he mentions, has used this uh, in the past to like hide assets and whatnot. Anyway, what Jamad says is if you read the VIE structure of Alibaba, that it is like a babushka doll of nesting entities. That image is just, it's so good. Like It's, it's so good. <laughs> Basically, what one around the VIE structure, uh, what Shamath is saying is that this is it's such a complicated nest nesting of things that what are you even investing in is kind of the question that he yeah. ends up raising. And the point that he raises around it, which I think legally 
is true, politically becomes a bit less true, is that at any point in time, China can say, this thing no longer exists. That's what he's saying. Now, and again, I, I believe I'm not a I'm not even an expert. I'm like not even familiar really with Chinese law outside of how, you know, yeah. of, uh, of like reading articles and stuff. But I believe that generally speaking, that's true. The VIE, I believe, is illegal in China. The Chinese government has made a list of a bunch of different industries where they say, if you if you exist in one of these industries as a company, you can't have foreign investors. So like non-Chinese investors, yes. that's where the yes. VIE structure came from. And then there's also, from what I've read, some Chinese law that says that you cannot create a contract that goes around Chinese law, like in order to circumvent Chinese law, which yep. technically a VIE would do. And so technically at any point in time, they could say this is illegal. What that would do has such huge ramifications. So let me pause. No, um, so uh, I love this. And I, I think you said it was Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks for sending this over. This is like truly one of the most interesting things I was able to listen to this week. Now, Chamath always gets me fired up, it seems, because his history with me is talking trash about value investing. And I know <laughs> on that front, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but that's fine. In other spaces, he definitely knows what he's talking about. This one, I'm on the fence about. This was almost a like a fascinating thought experiment for me in some of the ways that you explained it. Like, yes, probably technically in Chinese law, because I am a Baba stockholder at this point, probably technically I don't have a clear tie to their assets. So that seems like it should cause concern. And in a way it does, but in a weird way, it, this didn't bother, bother me at all, Dougal's like, I knew there's a, I haven't held any Chinese stocks until within the last six months. And I have two pretty extreme examples where I felt the regulatory risk or the government risk is outweighed by how cheap these stocks have become. Right. But that was part of my equation. So I, if my investment for Baba only, uh, if I can only make money by some sort of lawsuit slash liquidation of their assets, I'm going to be in trouble. That's not the path that I'm going <laughs> for, right? The What's so fun about the thought experiment is people like Charlie Munger, people like Tom Russo, like brilliant investors, people like uh, Mamish, Monish Pabrai. Yeah. yeah, sorry. They all own tons of Baba. What you're saying is, is like, well, what would happen? I, the Chinese government can say anything they want about almost anything. They, and if they want, they can kick... I don't know. I just don't think that's worth the risk. Even if if that's technically how the law is written, I don't think you want to alienate all your worldwide investors. Yeah, I, I think the political ramifications would just be tr so, like almost too tremendous. It's a it's a nuclear option, right? Yeah, Which, right. That's not to say it wouldn't happen. One uh, one thing, I mean, I might if a uh, if there are listeners that know more about the situation that I'm about to roll out, we'd love to hear from you because I've only like briefly read this and it, it's a bit ago, but one example that was non-government, um, it was actually uh, Jack Ma, I guess himself, that, that demonstrated what the VIE structure allows organizations to do is with Alibaba. Uh, and I hope I get this right, with Ant Group. Ant Group, which had the blocked IPO last year, yeah. Ant Group used to be Alipay. So it was this very big part of Alibaba. They had a payment system, kind of like if you think eBay, PayPal, like just think yep. analogous. Yep. They had this big uh, payment system called Alipay. And Ma was like, I mean, obviously he couldn't do this single-handedly, but basically Jack Ma said, 
this is worth a heck of a lot. Alibaba can still thrive without it. Let's spin this out, basically take it off. But it yeah. was different than the way a spinoff might work. If you think about that working in the US, he just like took it, uh, like he just took the assets and put them in a different company. And yeah. shareholders were like, well, hold like that's a, you can't just do that. He's like, actually, I can. Like you don't own, you don't own that asset. Um, and so I think that's where, and if I, if I remember correctly, like Yahoo, which was a lot of Yahoo's money was coming from an investment yeah. in Alibaba was like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's like, that's like an interesting and probably pretty rare example of something that a company could even do, given that the VIE structure means that you don't hold the assets. But I think this is, I mean, China's the only major economy in the world I can think about where this would even be discussed. If I buy ADR on a US stock exchange that is trustworthy, I've never in the past, you know, like I've owned British Petroleum or who knows what else, you know, I've owned a bunch of ADRs. I've never really thought about, oh, should I be concerned that the New York Stock Exchange in a way, and I'm using New York Stock Exchange as an example, didn't do their due diligence that says when I buy stock from them, I actually have a claim to assets of this company. Like I've never even really thought that your typical investor had to ponder those things. And Chamath is claiming uh, that you should when it relates to China. And I don't, I, I don't even second guess that. I just think it's a nuclear option to your point. And I don't really think anyone's going to end up going there. And there's a reason that these Chinese holdings are really small position for me because of that government risk. I mean, that's just always going to be there. To your point, the thought experiment, I think is really is fascinating. And this there's so much that's going to be fascinating to watch as to how China prepares itself for um, for whatever the future looks like. And it's it's taken, there's so much action. A few other things in China, there's like so much action they're taking, right? I mean, we, we've covered a yeah. bunch of it, but even this this week, there was more. So this week they came out with the kids can't play video games more than three oh, yeah. hours a week. My son was fired up about that, man. It, I can't ever get the China trip now. He, he won't go over there. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you're not going to let me play video games. I have no interest. You just have to take a console. If you take a physical console, they can't, they don't know what you're doing there. And like VPN, I mean, yeah, tell me the loophole here because I got to play my video games, Dougal. Well, so from, from what I understand, a way that they're tracking this is mostly in online games, right? They're yeah. tracking it. And the online games have, like the systems have facial recognition that they use yes. as yes. well, right? But if you take like your NES, your 1986, NES system and just plug that in, right? I think you're good. Oh, so yeah, if I'm not connected to the internet effectively. Yeah, so this is the funniest thing that happened to me this week is three weeks ago, there were these things, basically these masks that you could put on to avoid facial recognition and, and they're becoming a hot thing in Asia, it claims anyway. But I was picturing someone wearing a fake mask, like a president's head or something, like playing Nixon, video yeah. games. So they could actually get through the loophole, right? So it's like, it's recognizing my face. It's not me, man. So I, I got it a whole nother hour. <laughs> Why has Richard Nixon played 17 yeah. hours of video games today? Yeah. No, it's like Lincoln, then Nixon. Then it's like, you have to switch a mask every hour because <laughs> I think you only get one hour per day. Uh, um, oh, that's yeah, going to happen, that's man. It's totally <laughs> going to happen. That's great. That's great. Uh, the, the other thing, one last China thing, uh, and then we can, we can roll off. This is, there's this, this uh, concept of common prosperity that's now hitting the airwaves. So China's president came out and just said, like, we need, we need to share the wealth amongst yep. our, 
our full constituent base. And this is this makes me want to dive even further into understanding uh, what China's after here, because it is so, so fascinating. For those that do not know, there is one ruling party in China. It's the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Chinese Communist Party has been around for close to 100 years, right? Something like that, right? It's gone through all like the Mao Zedong. It's gone through all this stuff and has evolved over that time period. So you cannot call it pure communism, whatever pure communism is today. Yeah. However, at its roots, communism is something where you say like you're, you're sharing assets. Like to put it like in the simplest way possible, I'm like oversimplifying that completely. But a couple factoids out there that I read about is one. So China has what effectively comes out to be a regressive uh, tax system. So the lowest income workers pay 40% of their wages back. That's that's rough. That's um, the so lowest pays 40%. Wow. That, 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 yeah, that, that's what I've read. That's what I've read. Okay. And then uh, when you look at uh, inequality, wealth inequality in China, it doesn't fare all that well. So neither does the U.S. Uh, I'll do a little quiz here. If you measure wealth inequality by the Gini coefficient, are you familiar with the Gini coefficient? Vaguely. Yeah, I yeah. read about this in the past couple of weeks, but yeah, I think our listeners yeah. would benefit from a quick description there. Yeah. So I'm not familiar with the, the math behind the Gini coefficient, but I can describe what it is. It was created back in like 1912 by an Italian either sociologist or mathematician, something like that. But what it's, it's used, it's, it's the most commonly used a measure of wealth inequality uh, among countries. And it's a measure of zero to one or zero percent to a hundred percent. And the thought is like, what percent of the, the population like basically is in share of wealth. And so if you have, if you have a one, that means that a hundred percent of assets are basically owned by a single entity or a single individual. Mm -hmm. And a zero would be like, we all have $1, right? Like we're all, we're all equal. Yeah. It's shared um, equally. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So if you use the Gini coefficient, what country has the highest wealth inequality in the world? I'll say it this way to cheat. I'm pretty sure China and the US are one too. That's incorrect, but that was a, it's a good guess. <laughs> so it's, a, it's South Africa, um, oh, really? which has, okay. yeah. So 63.63, right? Is, oh, a, wow. is South Africa's. Yeah. So Africa actually has the, it has most of the, the top six. But when you get to China and the U.S., they're they're up there. Uh, but the U.S. is a 0.35. Um, China's like 0.37 or something. Something like, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. So basically not doing well. Uh, and, and so what it seems like is happening right now is the, the Chinese government is saying part of what you've gone back to have been like, we've we've allowed individuals to get out of control with the amount of wealth. We don't like that. Mm -hmm. Right. You are not the leader of this country. We are the leader of this country. Wealth inequality is not doing so well. Let's use those entities and those individuals that have amassed this much wealth to basically create common prosperity. And they have, they've cracked the whip so much in the last few months that the organizations and individuals are like, okay, like this, no, yeah. we're, we, we want to have a company. So, okay, to the, to the point where they're, they're giving away these donations that are massive. So $15 billion, right? For yeah. So. Alibaba, $15 billion in donations. So that by itself is a heck of a lot of money. When you put it in context, how much cash before this 15 billion does Alibaba have? Oh, I saw these numbers, but I don't know them off the top of my head. Fill me in. 45 billion. So give me a yeah. third of their cash. Ten I mean, cent. they're doing it through 2025 and no, I... they're, 
Yeah. I'm trying to get headlines here, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's true. And uh, yeah, so by that point, I mean, they're going to be generating more and more cash as they go forward. So yeah, uh, Tencent, yeah. also 15 billion. They were going to give away 7 billion. And I think someone in the back end was like, I don't know if you saw what Alibaba was doing, but so then they- No, it it's the other way billion. around, I think. I think Baba ended up matching uh, Tencent. Oh, is that what it was? Is that what it was? Yeah. Uh, so they're giving away 15 billion. Um, and also have something like 30-ish billion dollars. Uh, and then Pien Duo Duo, which I think is how you pronounce this. Uh, in, uh, that's how you, I think uh, Americans pronounce it. <laughs> um, it's an online grocery. They, for the first time, had a profit, like an annual profit, and they're giving it all away. You know, so, we just got to gotta bring a, an expert on in this space. When we started the pod, I never thought we'd spend as much time talking about China as we had. I mean, they're they're like going after headlines. I think they must, uh, I don't know, have a reality show going on or something. And the more things they can put in the Wall Street Journal, the better for ratings or something. So like, <laughs> it's just fascinating, man. I mean, all those companies effectively got, it's like a higher tax rate that was kind of mandated slash suggested and like, what does that mean? It's yeah. too early to say, but it's just something it I never would have anticipated coming. And again, if you talk just Alibaba, like Alibaba went down, what, 60, 70% basically out of fears for what was going to happen. And now they've agreed to pay $15 billion over five years. Is the Chinese government truly going to be happy with that? Or in three weeks, are they going to have to raise that to $20 billion? Like, it's just... Who knows what's going on yeah. over there, man? Yeah, it's I know. Crazy, I know. Bunch of stuff happening in China. Uh, it's let's just sit down with our popcorn, bro. Watch this out. Yeah, but so uh, on the Gini coefficient and the 0.37 or whatever. Again, I'm not an expert in communist governments, but ha isn't it weird that you're basically at the same level of wealth inequality as the U.S. and claiming to be communist? Isn't that just odd? At face value, uh, yeah, that's, that's real weird. And so then these these taxes, I'm just going to call them. Is it even clear yet how that wealth is going to be redistributed? I've only seen it at at like the high level headline, you know, in an article kind of level. So, but what it seems like is it from what I've read, it's not going to the government. The money is going. It's going directly. Like they've pledged it to um, certain. I don't know if they're nonprofits, but organizations or initiatives or so I don't think it's flowing through the government. I think they've pledged where it's going to, but I don't know how specific they've gotten with that. Yeah, I think it's pretty high level right now. But the interesting thing about what you're saying there, Douglas, is like, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to the government, but it's $15 billion that is meant to appease the government. So basically, the government is saying, you will send the money to this specific place. You know, like it's all yeah, behind the yeah. scenes. It's, and it's I like just if, would love uh, to see how that actually works. If Biden was like, I need to pay for these railroads, right? Or whatever. Yeah. And I could either tax you, but I can't, I can't do that. I can't figure out a tax you. So instead, Amazon, can you just give money to the, to these straight infrastructure places? Like that's, that feels like more of what they're, of what's yeah. happening. So you're right. Because of, at the will of, but not not directly to, is how the money's flowing. Can we touch briefly on Renaissance Technologies? I want to mention this for two reasons. Jim Simons, who has maybe the best investing track record, 
that I'm aware of anyway, that led Renaissance technology. Um, him and Robert Mercer just settled a probe with the IRS for $7 billion. So when we were talking about 15 billion in China, Douglas, you thought that was a big number. Can you imagine having to pay 7 billion in back like, taxes? As an, as an individual or set of <laughs> I mean, individuals? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a company, but it's a small company. I wanted to mention this for two reasons. One, uh, the book on this is fabulous if you want to pick it up. But two, go. I actually thought that it wasn't Renaissance that had to pay. I thought it was the the individuals personally had to pay this amount of money. Is that wrong? Is that because the trades were in their name, though? It's like a short term capital gain versus long term capital gain situation where they right yeah but that, that's why i think it's like personally what they took out of like their profits from the fund well actually so that's that's the main thing i wanted to mention their strategy was so good that they kicked out outside investors yeah we, we don't need made everyone that ever touched the fund like billionaires because yeah. they couldn't run they couldn't run that quant strategy with you know hundreds of billions but they could run it with the people in the organization. So that's when you truly know that someone has a breakthrough when they don't want your money. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. was going to be my whole point. Like <laughs> anyone that's pitching you about XYZ is not as smart as Jim Simmons because he was like, no, I'm going to make everyone that matters in my organization filthy rich. And no one, I mean, the medallion fund, you couldn't even, after like the first three years, there was no outside money allowed because they wanted all the profits for themselves. And the, uh, the, when you look at the returns by year, which I don't have in front of me, but I just remember it's, it's, it's like out of this world. I think in, if I, this, this might be off or something that yeah, per year, but even if you look at it on the year basis, the one that stood out to me was, um, and they had this chart in the book that laid out the, the gains by year. And in 2008, I think it was, it was something like up 80%. And that wasn't, it wasn't a one-off. It was per your point, like it was bringing in 60%, you know, maybe it fluctuated to 70% sometimes. And then, <laughs> yeah, or maybe they had a rough time of 50, 40% exactly, return. Exactly. And the market goes down in half and it's 80%. And it's just, it was <laughs> this, this thing, right? It was incredible. They, they basically, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we, we've discussed Ed Thorpe, I think a little bit in his yeah. ability to use math to do amazing things across multiple markets, poker table, I think roulette, right? Stock market. Yep. And they, they just systematize that to the ultimate. Oh my goodness. It's if incredible. I remember right, Ed Thorpe, another guy who might have the second best investing track record of all time, it, over the course of 20 plus years, I don't think he ever lost money on a quarterly basis. If he did, he might have had one quarter where he lost like a few bucks. He was down it's like less than 1%. Like that. I mean, like that. the ability to make that money and make it consistently is unheard of. And again, Ed Thorpe was not a person, to my original point here, that was going out begging for money. He realized his strategy was so good that he was just going to sit back and, and cash the checks. Like he, The people that go out and beg for money typically are not the people that have strategies anywhere near as good as, yeah. as Ed Thorpe or Jim Simon. And I'm gonna sorry, just a little side tangent on Ed Thorpe that I that I think is interesting is, and we we don't have to give a lot of background on him, but um, just really smart guy. Like that's the yeah. that's what I'll I'll throw out there. He if if people are familiar with the Black Scholes formula, which is a, a formula for being able to value derivatives um, that was used by long term capital, which it did not end up working well for that that organization. Mm -hmm. But Ed Thorpe basically like came up with this. I'm gonna 
this is not the real story, but I want to do this for, uh, uh, for entertainment value. He was like in the corner of a basement with a pencil and a piece of paper and came up with this, this, uh, this formula like on his own. And so basically he had had some conversations with, uh, I think what Fisher Black, Myron Trolls, yep. I think he'd like yep. had some combos with them, like casually came up with this formula, started using it to trade, was doing incredibly well. And then a few years later, they remembered this dude that they talked to and they created this formula, came to him and they're like, can you check this out? And he kind of went at Thorpe was like, well, crap, like, cause he knows they're academics. And so they're going to put this out. And he'd been, yeah. like, he'd just been using it in his hedge fund. And he was like, ah, oh, all right. He'd, he'd just been making money for 10 years and there was no need. So yeah, we got on a tangent here, but I love both these books. So I've got to shout them out for the listeners. So the Ed Thorpe book is called A Man for All Markets. Truly like one of the best things you'll read. And the um, Renaissance Technology book is called The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant uh, Revolution. Both great books and both fairly recent, actually. Both have come out within the past three or four years, I'd say. Um, so check those out. All right, I think you want to give a shout out to a piece of audio, a little podcast that I mentioned earlier that was around Bitcoin, crypto, et cetera. You want to shout that out? Maybe we can talk about it for a minute. I do, man. So. Um... If you're interested in the crypto space at all and more ready for like the 201 class instead of like the 101 class, the Lex uh, Friedman podcast had Charles Hodgkinson, founder of Cardano, also co-founder of Ethereum on. It's a five-hour podcast. I would skip maybe the first hour or so. Really fascinating, thought-provoking stuff from truly someone in the space that's been around. And I feel like he gives great criticisms of Bitcoin and some of the limitations and the lack of evolution there, and then just general insights in the space. So if you're interested in that, I'd really recommend it. It's episode 192. It was very entertaining for me this week. I, I only listened to 15 minutes of that. And it's this is a world that you know and you're into you know, much more than, than I am. Um, but I found the 15 minutes I did listen to, just it was... The um, the way that he like articulates and explains these concepts, it, it breaks it down. I'm not going to say in like the simplest way, but a way that someone that isn't as into it as I am, like can kind of uh, abstract out, I think, to other like can can create analogies and abstract out other concepts. And I, I thought it was really fascinating how he was talking about Bitcoin specifically and how Bitcoin is it's like the V1 that refuses yeah. to evolve. Right. Yep. And how it, it could. But now. As we've discussed before, it's basically a brand, like it's it's riding on its brand uh, and doesn't have a real identity that it's trying to push forth. It's just like this brand that seems to fit whatever the investor, quote unquote, investor that wants to throw money into it kind of is. I think it's interesting. So just seconding your uh, your push, although I listened to a part of it. Yeah. So T Charles Hodgkinson is um, he's the founder of Cardano, which Cardano has gone crazy recently and is now the third most popular cryptocurrency in the world. More importantly than that, he's a teacher by trade and he's done a lot uh, okay. of academic research. And so there's a reason that he's good at, at explaining these things. He, on top of that, Dougals, he's incredibly well-traveled. I think he's been 50 countries in the past five years. And he went to, I think it's Ethiopia. I just thought this was fascinating. And it takes it away from, he, he doesn't care about people making money with crypto. He cares about he thinks the use case is intriguing. So Ethiopia wanted, um, they were having some problems certifying different, like basically educational 
they were having a hard time with people kind of counterfeiting being like, oh, I'm trained as a nurse, but you're not actually a nurse. Or like, I'm trained as a coder, but you're not actually a coder. So him and his team worked like with verifying credentials. That's the, yeah, yeah. yeah. They worked with the Ethiopian government to basically do like on blockchain, almost social security numbers and other things that you can tie a driver's license and a certification and different levels of education. And theoretically, even like medical records and all these other things that is publicly available and verifiable. But again, it's not, it's public, but you need kind of the key to see what identity ties to what, you know, kind of, you don't know the social security number without that magic key of the individual validating it for you. Yep. But then when they say, I have this level of education and I'm this old and they give you that information, it's, it's readily available. So there's just a lot of that sort of stuff that he's knowledgeable in that I find fascinating because again, I, I don't know, like that's, that's more potentially game changing and meaningful long-term for us than just finding some, you know, making a penny here or there. Right. Agreed. And it's that determining those use cases for blockchain and or crypto is going to make all this stuff like actually take off in a sustainable way. Right. I think you've, uh, you pointed that in the past. So thanks for sending that over. Yeah. It's good stuff. What's, what's in the fishbowl, Douglas? I've got, I've got one last thing uh, in the fishbowl and this is about Robin hood, but actually not fully about Robin hood. It just impacts, it could potentially uh, impact Robin hood a lot. And that's that our SEC chairman has said, and that's Gary Gensler. He said that payment for order flow, which we've discussed in the past, but to briefly hit on that, that's when uh, in instead of making money on the commissions per trade, you're getting paid by a third party that's act that's doing the real trading itself and paying you for the right to trade. The right to trade. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a fair way to say yeah. it. And so they're basically what this incentivizes for a company like Robinhood that makes money on payment for order flow is the quantity of of order flow itself because you make you make less per trade, um, so you need more volume, and so making yeah, it so is easy. The number yeah, right. of trades is important for their business model. Exactly, and so uh, but so Gensler, what he's saying is as he's trying to figure out like how he's going to do whatever he decides to do with regulation to get the markets kind of in order. One of the things he's saying is on the table is banning payment for order flow. Robinhood makes 80% of its net revenue from payment for order flow. So that's obviously not good. I don't know if I have, like, I'm not sure how I feel actually when it, when it comes to this, um, to be honest. I mean, I've seen like the arguments that sit out there where the like brokerage houses like Robinhood are saying that this increases like access, right? Because you don't have to have a commission. So it democratizes markets. And the critics are saying basically what we talked about is that there's this conflict of interest that kind of sits out there. I get that. I don't, I don't feel like I have a strong view, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. What we, we kind of talked about the costs associated with trading equities. What, like three weeks ago, <laughs> there was a pretty decent article that broke it down. Uh, I would say exactly what we said three weeks ago. Like it's important to know that Robin hood has different motivations here that might be tied to encouraging you to trade more frequently and all of your brokerage effectively do fidelity, Vanguard, whoever else. But in the grand scheme of things for your average investor, it probably costs pennies or less than pennies. So it's not something I'm particularly fired up about. And I don't 
see this as like a burning bush or burning bridge or something that needs to immediately change. I think it's just something to be aware of and keep an eye on. And maybe to even be um, more specific from what I was saying, I don't, I don't feel very strongly when it comes to like the overall like market of which is, is better or worse. I would rather not have to pay commissions. Like personally, like I'm like, it, not that it's going to make True, a huge yeah. difference, but I'd rather not pay commissions. Um, but the, the place this actually, this, uh, this brings up for me um, a tweet uh, that you shot over this week too. Cause the, the broader thing that it does get me thinking about is all of the hidden costs that end up hitting individuals that they don't realize. Right. So I, we, I mean this, and we've talked about all this as well. I mean this in a few different ways, like some of the hidden costs that I think are I'll say more obvious, but the people still don't necessarily think about a lot are taxes um, and any transaction costs, right? That might hit. Mm-hmm. Those are some quote unquote hidden costs. I mean, they're yeah. they are out there in the open, but I think people don't think about them enough, so they're hidden. But the other, which gets back to this that tweet, is the timing of the market. Maybe that's the easiest way to think about it. And people thinking of like getting in and out of trades and the amount of money that you end up losing based on the timing of the market is like another one that if you're, if you're someone that's now saying I'm an amateur, but I'm going to be like a high, high frequency trader of, of any sort that you end up on paper, you might say, I'm going to look at what my stocks did over the course of periods of time, but you don't realize that you lost like 1% here, 3% there, 2% here, you know, based on your timing, this study, it's an annual study. This is the first time I've seen it though, is called mind the gap. And what it showed was if you look at the 10-year investment returns that ended at the end of last year, so 10 years ending 12-31-2020, that investors earned 1.7% less per year than what their fund investments were over that time period. Meaning that at the beginning of that 10-year period, if they'd just thrown money into, let's just call it one ETF to keep it simple at the beginning yeah. and held through the end, they would have made 1.7% per year, which is a lot count compounding over that period of time. Then instead of what they actually did, they're saying that they were buying in and out of these funds. And so they were, by the quote unquote timing the market, they were missing out on just the, the buy and hold returns they could have gotten. Yeah. So Douglas, we've talked about the, the Dalbar study on investor behavior yeah. Yeah. Um, before and, and some concerns that come with that. I, I find this Morningstar research uh, more credible. Uh, it's, it shows, I mean, there's a similar conclusion here. It doesn't say the performance of your average investor is quite as poor as the Dalbar study seems to say, but there, there definitely is a, a performance gap. And what's interesting is they break it down by, they call it US category group. And so the gap varies based on the type of investments. Like they def- they have an alternative category where the gap's almost 4% alternative investments. So investors there seem to be more apt to buy high and sell low, I'd say, than someone with a, a more traditional like US equity allocation, which makes sense to me. I think if you're in alternative investments, you're more likely to be a frequent trader or someone that's trying to ride mo- waves of momentum than uh, someone that's just buying a basket of US equities and hopefully sitting with it for the long term. Let that be a lesson to you. All yeah, right, it's you got a good study else? to I'll throw it on the Twitter. You got anything else in your fishbowl? No, man. Wish me luck in the momentum investing capital of the world. You, uh, you don't need luck in Vegas. You don't need luck. Get out there. <laughs> do your thing. Don't be scared. YOLO. Oh, I'm terrified. Hoddle. I'm terrified. Whatever. All uh, of it. 
hit us up on Twitter at Skippy Doogles and on Gmail, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Thank you. Rate and review, please.